0: This week, Walt Mossberg joins the show for a little bit to talk about Apple's new M1 MacBook Air. Then Chris Welch and Dan Seifert join us to go deep into all of Apple's new Macs. We talk about what's going on with the App Store, and there's also a little bit on RCS and the new Google Pay that's coming up. Now, this episode brought to you by InterSystems Iris. Developers, you got some extra time on your hands? Use it to learn a new database. InterSystems IRIS allows you to connect your systems, use any data model, and apply machine learning so you can build data-intensive and mission-critical applications in no time. Now's your chance to level up your database platform and try out InterSystems IRIS, the fastest way to build applications. Ready? Set code. Visit intersystems.com slash tryiris to learn more. That's intersystems.com slash T-R-Y-I-R-I-S. Hello, and welcome to the flagship podcast of Performance Per Watt. See? It's topical mm. this time, Dieter. Mm. Yeah, that's, there's that noise. <laughs> I'm Eli, I'm your friend. Dieter Bone is here. I am your your chum. Good,
1: I'll take yeah. it. Dan Seifert is here. Hello, I'm merely an acquaintance at this point.
0: Dan's like, don't, let's not get any ideas. <laughs> Chris Welch is here. Good to be back, as always. So last week, we, had, we assembled this group to talk about the launch of Apple's ARM Macs. This week, we've reviewed them a lot to talk about. Uh, We reviewed the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, the Mac Mini. Big Sur is out, just a ton to talk about, and there's some App Store stuff. It's a a big week, and this is true. Uh, Apple sent a MacBook Air to Walt Mossberg, our friend and colleague, Walt Mossberg. Even though he's retired, they're like, it's so good, we want you to see it. So Dieter and I jumped on the phone with Walt uh, for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, And talk to him about the air. So we're going to run that a little later in the episode, too. So just jam packed M1 Max on this episode. We're going to get into it. As always, I do want to start with the pandemic. It's still happening. It's getting worse in countries around the world, particularly the United States. We have a lot of coverage on it. I just want to call some of it out. One, Trump has refused to concede the election, which is dumb. It's holding up federal vaccine planning. There are two vaccines that have very, very promising preliminary data that could be out very soon. To distribute those vaccines is complicated. They require multiple doses. They need to be transported in uh, something called a cold chain, which means they stay cold a long time. That is a logistics problem. Like Just getting the thing done isn't it, and the government needs to be involved in that. So his refusal to concede to Biden is preventing the, the Biden administration from taking up that work. Got a story about that. The surge of the virus around the country is another problem. Like The treatments are scarce. They're new. They need to be made. And as demand goes up, supply is non-existence right now. That's a problem. We got a story about that. We have deep dives into both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Uh, they're very interesting. Uh, our science desk has done a great job pulling that stuff apart. And, you know, we live in an information ecosystem, and so YouTube is starting to add information about vaccines to its fact-checked boxes, and then the other platforms are going to have to do that stuff soon. So we're into that phase of it, but the pandemic is bad. It's getting worse. Wear a mask. Stay home. I'm not going home for Thanksgiving. You shouldn't either. The CDC says you shouldn't. Just please stay safe. We're, we're It's still the biggest story in the world. I don't want to distract from it. Um, we have a lot of coverage. Our science team is doing a great job of it. Just please stay safe. Okay, let's start. Here's Dieter and I talking to Walt Mossberg about the new M1 MacBook Air. Walt Mossberg, welcome back.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. I I, I love working for free.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I love making you work for free. It's a real power move. It's one of the last true power moves I have is making you work for free. How are things going?
2: Fine. If if you like my house, it's <laughs> it's fine, and I do like my house, so it's fine.
0: Yeah. So you, uh, very famously, were. Uh, a huge fan of the original MacBook Air. Well, the second generation MacBook Air.
2: Yeah. Well, both, to be honest, but yeah. Uh,
0: And I recall that when you retired, you purchased a cache of MacBook Airs because you said it was the best computer.
2: Yeah, there's a little exaggeration there, but I I do have an uh, completely unopened MacBook Air because I was convinced at one point that they were just going to kill it. They're just going to let it die.
3: Do you have it in a, in a glass case with, a, like, a metal rod <laughs> chained to it that says, in case of emergency. Uh-huh. I do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. <laughs> ca- and a very, very large lock, you know. Yeah, it says... And I bought a guard dog just for if that. If the
0: butterfly keyboard ever comes back, break glass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so I, I, I lay that little bit of history because we have obviously just reviewed the new MacBook Air with Apple's M1 chip, and you have had one as well. So I'm dying to know what you think of this sort of major internal change to the mac even though the the outside kind of looks the same.
2: Okay, so uh, I just want to say one thing first. I actually believe that the MacBook Air, which you know and I know was the thing that the Windows guys were trying to copy for years and years. I think it doesn't get enough credit for being one of the seminal products of the last 20 years. I mean, it's not as seminal as iPhone or, you know, the first Android phone or whatever, but it was a seminal product because it, you know, light, thin laptops tended to be cramped before the MacBook Air and they tended to be, uh, there were a lot of compromises. And the MacBook Air also kind of almost tied, I think it maybe was a month before one of the ThinkPads in having an SSD There were a bunch of things about it that were notable. And then the 2010 one was a huge uh, improvement. And then the 2013 one, ironically, given what's happening now, because of an Intel chip, because of the Haswell chip at the time, which was uh, specifically meant to give a huge leap in battery life. I mean, I got in my test, I looked it up. uh, I got 12 hours on it. And they were only claiming 10 different battery tests, of course. But um, So I think the MacBook Air is a, is a really important consumer tech product. And I think this one is, I mean, I, I agree with, with Dieter's review. I think it's sort of amazing. I mean, we've all known they were going to do this. I'm no chip expert, processor expert, but um, from what I can understand... They've pulled off something amazing in relatively short time. And by that, I mean, you know, it takes a long time to develop a, a, a processor. It's not it's not like doing some other things. So uh, and, and, and in my use of this, I think the single thing that has impressed me most, the battery life has impressed me. I, I have not plugged this in in about 36 hours and i have 75% battery life. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh it's buttery smooth, it's fast as can be. But the thing that really impresses me is their uh, their translation layer, this thing called Rosetta 2. They had a Rosetta when they made another uh, processor change some years ago. And what it does is it takes apps that have not been written for this processor that were written for the Intel processor, which is most of the third-party apps so so far, and it runs them. And I got to tell you, they run fast. They run normally. I mean fast. You couldn't, if you were doing a blind test and you didn't know this was originally written for Intel, still written for Intel, and it was running through this Rosetta thing, you would never know it. At least that's been my experience. I don't know if it's been yours.
3: Yeah, no, completely. That's, to me, that's one of the most impressive parts. Uh, Maybe if you were staring at how many times it bounced in the dock when it launched for the first time after reboot or something, you might be able to tell the difference. But otherwise, just exactly the same. Um, And it's my understanding that they co-developed this processor hardware with Rosetta 2 in mind and vice versa. So I think part of what's happening here is This whole thing where Apple says, we are able to integrate hardware and software, and that makes our stuff really special, and sometimes that seems like a true claim, and sometimes it seems like it's more marketing than reality. I think in this particular case with Rosetta 2, is absolutely reality that I don't think their translation software would have worked as well if the chip team didn't know it was coming and they didn't know it was on the chip. And those two things are, you know, my, my hunch is there's some sort of... Thing inside the M1 chip that is especially just just there just to make Rosetta fast.
0: There's actually a tiny little Intel chip inside of the M1. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's, uh, they don't talk about it a lot. Right next to the
0: neural <laughs> engine, there's a Core i5. So while you were saying the, the Air is a seminal product, and I actually want to just dive into that little history with you because, Dieter, the first line of your review was the MacBook Air is a triumph. We came this close to giving the thing a, a 10. I mean, it's like it's as close to perfect as a laptop can be. But Apple tried to kill the air for a while. And like one of the things you and I have talked about over the years is they were unsuccessful. People just kept buying it, even though Apple didn't want them to. And I know you've got some history there. So like, do you think that it's come full circle that the air is right back where it should be?
2: The people that I know who I've talked to, not just in the last few days, but over the last I don't know, five, eight years, seven years, whatever it is, have always told me that the Air was their best-selling. I mean, they don't like to talk about this kind of thing, but they've always given me the, either said it outright or indicated that it was their best-selling Mac. And one thing I think people uh, don't realize, just a small side tangent, is that the Mac is a $25 billion to $30 billion annual business. It's like a footnote. When we talk about <laughs> Apple, we think about iPhones. You know, we might think about iPads. Now we're thinking about services and the other things they want to stress. And the Mac is the, you know, the old product. It's the, you know, the 1984 was in- introduced and all that. And But a $25 billion to $30 billion product is a Fortune 200 product if it was a separate company. That's a Fortune 200 company. So it's an enormous business. Now I don't know how much of that is the MacBook Air, but if the MacBook Air is the best-selling one, it's probably in the billions of dollars. And there's lots of companies which never ever will be in the billions of dollars. So this is a this is a, a hugely important product for Apple. It's hugely popular with users. I do think, and and there's some Steve Jobs showmanship in this, but I do think one of the Great moments in 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 tech unveilings was when he pulled this thing out of a Manila envelope because people were and and showed that it had a a, a full keyboard and all the other things. You are right that there was a period when they made no improvements, and you could even argue uh, they degraded it. And I think my own sense, which I can't prove, I don't have the reporting to to prove it. And I'm retired anyway now, <laughs> so I'm too lazy to report. But um, when I wasn't retired, I tried once to report this and I got uh, some distance, but uh, my, I got far enough for me to believe that there was some kind of argument inside the company about whether the pro, the base level pro, at least, which you will remember, they suddenly made small and thin and by I don't know, the measurement on one end of it, well, I guess on both ends of it, because it's not tapered, uh, is, what is it, a millimeter thinner than the thick end of the MacBook Air and only a tiny bit heavier and all that. There was some faction inside Apple that thought this could be both the consumer laptop and the kind of low-end pro laptop with upside for people who were pro, pro, pro. And I, you know, I don't think, I think that actually was, that was a failure. That theory was a failure. I don't mean the MacBook Pro is a bad computer in any way, but it didn't make consumers happy because they loved the MacBook Air and it didn't make pros happy because by making it so small and thin, it may, you know, it, it reduced the thermal envelope. It had some other, some other issues for people who considered themselves pros. So I think there was a faction within apple maybe the, maybe the design first faction versus the product management faction inside the company i don't know that that said well that's just the air it's kind of like putting a, a hurt animal <laughs> out, out, out to just pass away as peacefully as possible. and But the, the consumers weren't having it. And inside the company, there was an argument about it. And I think the people, the pro air people won. You could see it in 2018 when they didn't make huge changes, but they did bring out a new air with some speed bumps and what at the time they thought was their cool new keyboard it was pretty bad keyboard <laughs> which is now gone. But they kind of brought it up to date for what they had at the time. Now I have to imagine that in twenty eighteen they were already they already knew they were going to do this M1 machine. But they did that and that was the signal that the air was not going to be let left to die. And now, I mean, for Dieter Bohm to write the M1 MacBook Air as a triumph for whatever that first line was, I think I got it pretty close, Dieter, it was amazing. And there were other other superlatives he used that, um, I, I don't know how your fingers type those words. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to get that out of Dieter.
3: <laughs> it's funny, like, you know, I, I, I review a bunch of phones, and so whenever I review an Android phone, there's a bunch of iPhone people that say I'm an Android fanboy. Whenever I review an iPhone, there's a bunch of Android people that say I'm an Apple fanboy. There's a little bit less of that in the laptop world. But yeah, I uh, I don't know. I don't like to be too flowery or over the top when I'm praising something because I just I'm happier to use florid language when I'm criticizing something because that's just fun. Using really florid language when you're praising something, I worry people think that you are, I don't know, in the bag or something.
2: I understand that.
3: Yeah, so I don't do it very often, but so—but it, it also, I hope, and my intention here means that when I do use really superlative language, I mean it, and yeah. <laughs> with this laptop in particular, it's not just that the thing itself is good, it's that it should have been by rights, by the way that tech usually works, kind of bad. So not only did they not make the like compromise laptop that you expect for a first gen processor transition, they made an incredible laptop just objectively. And those two things together are why I wrote that sentence.
2: Yeah. Look, I I, I did reviews for 27 years. I understand exactly what, what you mean. And I can tell you that in my, whatever it is, Week or a little less than a week of using this. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, this is amazing and I'm buying one. You know, I know there will be people who would rather buy a pro, and, but I don't really need a pro and uh, I hate the touch bar in the pro. <laughs> I don't even want to look at it. And by the way, there is a slight change in the exterior of this machine. And you guys know this. They put, what is it, three new different function keys on here, there's a search one, there's a dictation one, and there's a do not disturb one. And those are useful. I can't even remember, I can't even figure out what they replaced.
0: I would rather have them change those buttons every year than spend one more ounce of time on the touch bar. Yeah, I
3: think it was, there was um, Launch Center, the app launcher that nobody but me uses. Nobody uses. Um, There was a blank one, and I forget what the other one was. So well, this brings up, uh, you know, you've been using it for a week, as a laptop, it's great. It runs
0: iOS apps. And if there's one place where Dieter and I, and almost every other reviewer has landed, is why, like, this isn't ready. It's not good. Why even put this here? Is that, has that, have you had a, a different experience? Has that been most of the same?
2: I'll be honest with you. I haven't tried. And I just take your word for it, as everyone should. You know, I think they probably had to say it runs uh, iOS apps only because people figure out and, People will write that it's the same processor or it's based around the same processor, so it ought to be able to do it. And so why not do it? But, you know, they just, for some reason that I've never entirely been able to figure out, they won't do a touchscreen. It's not that I'm a huge campaigner for them to do a touchscreen, but if if now they're going to use an ARM processor that's capable of running touch, a whole ecosystem of hundreds of thousands of apps that were developed for touch, and I'm a huge iPad fan. I use my iPad all the time. I'm quite used to that to touch. They ought to really make it work right, and I imagine eventually they will somehow. Don't ask me how. I think the obviously the easiest way to do it would be to do a touch screen. Maybe that's coming, Neil. I don't know.
0: You look at the interface, and they're saying, "Oh, we just made it look like this because we think it looks pretty." I'm like, these all look like touch, and we. You're, Apple is very good at telling us they're not going to do something until they do it and insisting they're not going to do it until they do it.
2: I mean, at least since 1991, when I started dealing with them, that's been true. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's funny and it's funny that you brought up the Pro. It, I, these computers are so good that I've gotten a lot of questions along the lines of, should I buy the Air or I need a little bit more performance? I think I should buy the Pro. And my answer is like, you should actually wait until the the good Pro yeah. comes out. With the four ports and the even faster processor. and the, But because everyone is so drawn to the M1 and the battery life, people are willing to compromise in ways that you usually don't see.
2: There's never been so little difference between an Air and a Pro as this M1 generation we're seeing this week. What is it? The, the Pro has a fan. They both can go kind of all out when they need to. But the Air is not going to be able to go all out for nearly as long as the Pro because it's going to get too hot and it's going to have to throttle down. And the Pro can keep going longer because it can just turn on a fan, which doesn't exist in the Air. That's my understanding of the difference, the major difference.
0: That's more or less what... And a touch no, bar. No, no,
2: we, yeah, yeah. but the touch bar is a minus. I'm <laughs> talking about plus differences.
0: So my advice to people who are asking me if, if they should buy a Pro is like, I would actually just... Maybe in another year, they'll get rid of the Touch Bar. They'll add a touchscreen, and you'll get a faster processor, and like off to the races we go. But it's amazing to me that it's so compelling already that people are willing to
2: compromise. I'm not even thinking about a pro for the reason you state. I mean, I can't, I can't see. First of all, I I am not a pro in that I don't edit video and edit audio and do advanced photo editing or anything like that. So I don't need it. But I actually think some of that you can do on an Air, this Air. And I love the MacBook Air. And even just the key, like, I didn't buy the last Air when they went back to the scissor keyboard. So mm-hmm. if I buy this, I get the scissor keyboard. Right now I have a, a uh, still have a butterfly keyboard, which has not broken, but, you know, will So I'm going to spend it and I'm going to and I'm going to bling it out. So it's going (laughs) to it's going to cost money.
0: And then then the one in the display case will stay there forever.
2: We'll stay there. Yeah, of course it has to. Yeah.
0: In the rest of the Mossberg Museum.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And the my 2018, I'll give to somebody in my family, you know.
0: Well, it's been great talking to you. uh, We got to have you back. I mean, if you're just hanging around working for free, I mean, anytime you want.
2: Well, the the working for we we may have to discuss if you want me on more often. I don't know.
0: I'll see what I can do. We'll 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 um,
4: we'll start a GoFundMe. It'll be great. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Avast, a global leader in cybersecurity, trusted by over 435 million users. We're spending more time online than ever these days, which means we're exposed to more risk too. A vast secure browser is the easiest way to keep yourself safe as you move around online. And it also loads up to four times faster than your current go to browser. Here's how A vast secure browser automatically blocks online ads to drastically improve website download times. And with advanced security measures built right into the browser, you can safely browse, shop, and bank online without ever thinking twice about whether or not it's safe. With advanced anti-phishing technology, forced encryption, and multi-layered shields against online tracking, Avast Secure Browser is the fastest, safest way to live your life online. Don't worry about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or cybercrime, because Avast has your back. Learn more about Avast's privacy, security, and performance products at avast.com.
0: Dieter. Yeah. Yeah. So you reviewed the Air. I reviewed the MacBook Pro. Chris reviewed the, the Mini. They all have the same M1 chip, except for the base model Air, which has a seven core GPU. Right. That's exactly right. So really, the differences here are how far you can push the M1 depending on cooling, and mm-hmm. to some extent, like how much RAM these machines have to like do stuff. Right. But we all had 16 gig machines so and we all had eight core machines. So really the difference is like how how much cooling made a difference here. But I want to start with the Air because the first line of your review was the MacBook Air is a triumph. Yeah. And I would just like you to unpack that because it's a lot. We, we don't say this. We're, we're not out here being like the Pixel 5 is a triumph. Like, we don't yeah. say this a lot. And
3: you were like you struggled with it and then you landed on it. Yeah, I wasn't I was going to do it that I wasn't going to do it and back and forth. Uh, and finally, yeah, it's like what Apple pulled off with these things is if there were no processor transition here and they just like sent us these laptops and said they're really fast and they have better battery life, we would have been like, "Sure, okay. Oh, holy crap, you're right. These are really fast and they have better battery life." But then on top of that, they did it in the with a processor transition where the software could have gone wrong in a thousand ways. I expected it to go wrong in a thousand ways. We've seen other companies try to do this transition and have software go wrong in all sorts of terrible ways, but none of that happened because they figured out a system for getting software to run and run fast. So they made the laptops radically better and they also executed a platform transition that should have been rough that turns out to not really be that rough. And so you put those two things together, it's a triumph.
0: You know what I've been thinking about a lot is our Mac Pro review, which is like, it was the same processor architecture. It's Intel chips, AMD GPUs. They just made a nicer <laughs> enclosure with more cooling. And like the software didn't even come along for that ride. Yeah. Right? Like, right. What was our <laughs> review of the Mac Pro like? fundamentally about? It? it was like, oh man, this computer would be really fast if any of this software supported this idea. And that was fun. that was the heart of our review. Here, the software definitely doesn't support the processor architecture. Like, absolutely does not. It didn't even try. There's no like Adobe has known about this for six years, and we're and they're waiting. And the update hasn't. It's we're just running Intel code, and the apps are fast and they work well and they're seamless and in some cases, like surprisingly faster. That is yeah. just remarkable to me.
3: So, uh, the, we did two benchmarks on games. Uh, I did started with um, Rise of the Tomb Raider, because it's the one that I own from the Mac App Store. And um, I was able to get that thing running at lowest settings, locked at 60 frames per second. And we maybe could have even gotten more if we had put it on an external monitor to support more. I had Vsync off, whatever. That is... Nuts! So I tell Dan and Monica this. I'm really excited, and they're like, "That's cool. What about the new one?"
0: <laughs> 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 uh,
3: okay, so put shadow on. Um, it did not hit sixty, uh, but at the lowest setting, it hit thirty-eight, which is kind of what you expect from like uh, an overperforming, not quite gaming laptop, or maybe a low-end gaming laptop. Um, this is on a fanless ultrabook. This is on a machine that uh, its that's predecessor would have just like cried if I tried to run Shadow of the Tomb Raider on it.
1: That kind of result is what we expect from like a Dell XPS 15. Technically not a gaming laptop, but it has a discrete GPU. It's got a really beefy processor. It's, you know, should be able to run a game. If you're hitting like 40, 35 to 40 frames per second on low settings in Tomb Shadow of the Tomb Raider, like you're, that's pretty good for a Dell XPS 15, which is not designed for play games, but designed to do other work. We're talking about a computer that starts at half the price of an XPS 15 has no fan. Like you mentioned, no discrete GPU has like what we assume is a 10 watt processor running inside of it. And it's, and it's hitting these levels and it's, it's, it was frankly quite stunning. I I would never recommend this. uh, Any of these machines as gaming devices. Uh, If you are really into gaming, these are not going to do it, but just the fact that they can run a heavy, like hard to run game at a at a, a pace that you could play the game if you wanted to, uh, is is like something that we just have never seen before in this kind of form factor
3: through Rosetta, not coded natively to the M1 chip, which might be higher than ten watts. Like Anantech's been doing a bunch of really good analysis. They're, they're they're like trying to estimate TDP based on power draw on the Mac Mini, which is a really fascinating way to do it. Uh, you mean instead of information provided by the vendor? Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: super interesting way to do it. <laughs> yeah, um, but, I mean, look, we have other benchmarks. There are some benchmarks that are numbers that are just bonkers. That, like, you run it three times because you don't believe it, right? And that's across, like, web browser benchmarks to Geekbench to Cinebench. Like, all of them are just like, what? But it also, all of those numbers actually do translate into what these things feel like to use day-to-day. Um, like, Neil, yeah, like what like, what was using your versions of these Macs like? Like it just felt like great, right? Like it felt like a Mac that wasn't bogged down and it was like hard to bog it down is how I felt.
5: Yeah, for sure. I mean, my daily machine is like a maxed out 16 inch MacBook Pro and like the Mac mini just felt just like using that essentially. And so like that was the most impressive thing about it. Like every app I opened, sometimes I felt like some apps took a while to open, but then once they were open, it just flew. And so, yeah, that was the most surprising thing about the whole whole review. I have one meeting a week That's in Google Meet.
0: Google (laughs) Meet in Chrome destroys a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Like, Google, the combination of Google Chrome and Google Meet is just devastating to a computer. I don't know, like, they have to know this at Google, right? Like, it's just noisy in all of their meetings. It's bad. Anyway, this thing just, like, did it. And that was, like, the moment to me I was like, I haven't not listened to my fan this much. Because, you know, I had the Pro, which has a fan and i just never heard it i had to actively push the machine and like i don't i'm not i don't do a lot of 3d rendering most days i type for a living you know so we had to run cinebench on like a 30 minute loop and at 10 minutes the fan would spin up and that was that's like your first inkling Uh, you know i didn't run a lot of m1 native apps like i don't and you know we uh, we obviously tested so far all of apple's apps are done so we Test those.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I did use a bunch of Apple's apps for this review period, but as soon as it was over, I was like, Duh, done with that. Yeah, um, you know,
0: my, my game was to like try to just use it because one of the other problems I had was killing the battery. It was it, the MacBook problems in, in in huge air quotes. One of the other problems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a great problem to have. But the the Pro has a bigger battery than the Air, and. I just at one point, I, I was slacking both of you. Like, I'm just running 4K YouTube videos in Chrome in the background just to see if I can get some battery drain going on. Yeah, and it wasn't, it was doing it, but it was like every 10, 15 minutes, I'd lose one percent. And I was like, Well, this battery test is gonna, like, we're just not gonna run the bat. And like, those <laughs> things are not normal. The last time. I think we saw laptops with this kind of battery life mm-hmm. was that Haswell generation of laptops.
1: Yeah. That was like the last time, you know, I know there's a lot of like discussion about the last time uh, Apple made up chip transition and things like that, but a more recent time of like when people were really excited about a new laptop because of what processor was in it that I can think back to is that Haswell transition, which I looked it up. It was 2013 and the MacBook air went from, what Apple was claiming at the time, seven hours of battery life to 12 hours of battery life on the 13 inch model. So it was like a 40% increase. Now they're going up to, I believe, 16 hours of battery life on the same metric. But in real world use, if you had a Haswell laptop at the time, it was twice as long it lasted. It went from like four hours to eight hours. And, you know, in the years since then, we've seen laptops get a little bit more powerful. They're doing more things. They're getting higher res screens. We've seen that battery life come down. The average laptop that we test now, I think nets out around six or seven hours. And then these come out and Apple's making these huge claims. I think they're claiming 20 hours of video battery life yeah. run down on the Pro. And we're like, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll see what it is. <laughs> and then, you know, we can't kill the battery in a workday. And like not being able to kill the battery in a workday with our standard workflow of using Chrome, lots of bra- uh, browser tabs, Slack, all these like what we know are power inefficient apps is like, you know, that is like a changing of the the the, the game for us and to use such a trite overuse expression. But like that is a huge quality of life deal. It's awesome that the performance is great. That's obviously what we were anticipating running into issues with. The fact that the performance is great and the battery life is like, also, great is just like, like that's why we're so excited about these, and then I think that's why you might have seen that come through in the reviews on social media, things like that. Every reviewer we've talked to uh, after reviews, every, if you look at other competitors, everyone's just like, we can't believe this is actually real.
0: There was definitely a moment before I published where I texted Joanna, just to be like, "Yo, are you? Do we screw this up? Like, yep. did you did you find anything? Because uh, it's rare, right? Like, we're very comfortable with the limits of." other products we review. Like, we review phones, and I'm like, okay, I figured out the camera. We review other laptops, and we're like, okay, this this thermal design and this GPU-CPU combination is doing about what we expect. Here you have a massive architecture transition, and we're like,
3: huh, nothing is bad.
0: Except for one
3: thing. (laughs) A couple. There's there's a handful of things. Uh, Just one last piece on the battery thing. I didn't put this in the review, but I wanted to. But I didn't feel like I had done enough, like, really careful one-to-one testing to say this definitively. But I will just tell you, between us, I'm getting better battery life on the MacBook Air than I am on an 11-inch iPad Pro. Just like if you, when you actually use an iPad Pro as your work computer, instead of using it like an iPad and watch a movie, set it down, turn it back on an hour later, browse the web for a while, blah, blah, like the way you normally would use an iPad. If you use an iPad as your work computer, the battery life is actually like. Normal, right? It it follows the same rules of physics that a laptop does.
1: Um, <laughs> I personally get i have a i have a twelve point nine inch iPad Pro, and I, I I get like five hours of use out of that using it as a laptop. And it's got a bigger screen than the eleven inch and such. But like, if I don't use it as a laptop, it's ten to twelve hours, right? Of like mm-hmm. you know intermittent tablet stuff. But I totally believe that that you are getting better battery life out of that Air than than a Pro um, iPad Pro. Yeah
0: has well, it has a bigger battery i think it's like part of the game
1: yeah
3: but like so so everybody is aware um, these two the the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro do not have bigger batteries than their predecessors. And in fact, one of the things that Apple chose to do here was keep these enclosures exactly the same. In my heart, what I wanted them to do is to bring back the original MacBook design, the little itty-bitty one that um, not enough people loved, and so they killed it. (laughs) Um, And that's everybody's fault for not having big enough hearts. Um, So way to go, cynics. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So uh, by the way, I
0: have two of them, including your old one here. Send it back to me um I, happily they're, they're just like we just use them as coasters now um they are so slow compared to this computer I like opened one up just like run the Geekbench, and it's like yeah 700 this computer is at 1700 it's amazing how right that's the usual trade-off to make something small thin battery last you
3: just trade that performance off and here that's not happening the big question that I have is, will the next MacBooks get a redesign where the enclosures and the the heat system and everything is more more customized to this chip and therefore we'll see even bigger claims or were these laptops sort of like designed with the knowledge that they were gonna do this M one in mind anyway? And so they were thermally throttled on Intel and that but all along they meant to have M one in these, it just took a little bit longer than they expected.
1: I'm convinced. That the 2018 MacBook Air refresh was designed knowing M1 was coming, and so when they put the cooling system in that for the Intel uh, processor, they were just like, "We're slapping a fan in, and we're not bothering to put heat pipes to connect it to the actual processor here, and it's just going to be what it is." And then when the M1 comes out, we just take the fan out and we're done.
0: Because the the 2018 Air had heat pipes, so we're not.
1: Connect. Well it, it the the thing was like it had a fan that was on like the other side of the con- of the chassis as the processor and normally when we see that if you open up the bottom of a laptop you see what are called heat pipes that are copper tubes that run from the top of the processor to the fan so they transfer the heat coming off the processor the fan blows it out the back so you get that hot air out the back the 2018 to early 2020 MacBook Air doesn't have those it's just a <laughs> fan sitting all by itself that is i mean i assume it's doing something it's exhausting hot air out of the case but it's logical laptop design you, you we know what the intel chips are doing you, you put heat pipes in there and it's much more efficient the fact that apple didn't even bother to do that just kind of reads to me like oh, they know it's coming so you know <laughs> we'll just throw the fan in there uh, have and we seen tear
5: teardowns of these yet we i don't think we have Oh, there's Mm -hmm. one of the Mac Mini, and it just there's a ton of space in there just not being used by anything at this point. It's just like (laughs) a a largely empty enclosure. I think Linus did a teardown of it, and it's just like a ton of space in there that's just not being used. So they could have clearly like gone for a new design, but they didn't. And I think they chose these three Macs pretty carefully as far as like people wouldn't really be that disappointed to not see like a big redesign. But like for the 16 inch MacBook Pro, or like there's some new iMac next year that's just the same design, that's gonna bum people out a little bit, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and again, uh, Dieter, you made this point in your review. The Air is their best-selling machine. Coming off of the best-selling quarter ever for Max. Yeah, which sucks yeah. for you if you bought a mac OS quarter. Because um, you probably bought an Air. Like, most people buy it. We know it's their highest-volume product. Yeah. Um, huge bet. And they were so confident in it. No caveats. And that was a – right? We caught it. We We noted that they were not telling us to avoid anything. And they pulled it off. I think what's interesting about these three machines, to Chris's point, is that they're largely the same computer in slightly different expressions, slightly different literally cases. So the Pro does have a fan in the benchmarks. Yep. It just sustains performance. It is very hard to even get the fan to come on. We knew this about the Pro design from the beginning. Ages ago... When Apple like revved to this version of the MacBook Pro, they wanted the, this base model, weird two point two port entry level, to replace the Air because it yeah. had better cooling. That wedge shape of the Air is not great for a lot of the things Apple wants to do with cooling. They don't want to put fans in there, but they made this one, and now you can just see like inherently it's a better thermal design. Plus, there's a fan, so it sustains performance. And then the Mini is even slightly higher. I mean just slightly.
5: Yeah. And Chris, I don't think you ever heard your fan at all. Not once. I haven't seen on review or anybody has heard it. It's just totally silent at all times. So I think that also speaks to like just how hollow it is inside and how much air just (laughs) flows freely through there. Uh, But yeah, I haven't heard it once and it's just, yeah, it's a fast, fast computer. I haven't found one app that doesn't work. I've gotten some questions about, Stuff like Pro Tools, and I feel like Pro Tools isn't one of those things where you race out to buy a first gen machine. So I think yeah. those kind of folks should probably hold off for a while. But as far as like day to day apps that I use every day, it all runs and it all feels very native. So
0: there are a handful of Adobe apps that they so Creative Cloud is like this interesting middle zone. So if you go to launch Photoshop or Premiere, you'll get a warning that says you're going to install the Intel version, just you know it until we release the the Apple Silicon version. And then you click yes, and you install it anyway. But that is officially unsupported. Yep. So you can run Photoshop and Premiere and Lightroom under Rosetta 2. They work fine. It's very fast. Unofficial, right? Not officially supported. But then Adobe Aero, Adobe Dimension, Adobe Substance. I don't even know what Adobe Substance is. So Adobe made some stuff, mm-hmm. and it's not currently compatible with M1 devices. And that was the first time anyone told us there's some stuff that's incompatible. So my Adobe, it's that list. I am sure as these things go out into the world, we're going to find more of that stuff. But the big apps all seem to work just fine.
3: Yeah. The big apps work so well that I'm worried that everyone's going to like be like, "Yeah, you know, we can hold off on optimizing. We can hold off on making a universal app because it's fine. People will wait. It's, everything's fine now. We don't need to rush to that. Um, and I I kind of like, I don't actually wish that things were slow, but there's like tiny part of me that's like, if the if there were just like a little bit more broken of the experience, then there would be a lot more pressure on these companies to fix it and optimize it for the M1, and then we would see some bigger gains.
0: No, I I, uh, I, I don't know. That's like a you have the, like yeah. a nightmare incentive scenario there. I'm happy <laughs> everything works well, <laughs> right? Like us waiting around for Adobe to do the right thing is like not a historically good <laughs> idea. Yeah. You know, like I, the the opposite incentives are true though. Like. What if, like, this is the time for us to really rethink Photoshop? And it's like, don't do that. Just ship it so it works better. Chris, did you find, I mean, you you were running it in a much more desktop kind of environment. Did you find there were any places where you would, because you were at the sort of the top end of the performance curve. Did you find there were places where you hit the limits of what you thought it could do?
5: Uh, Not really. I mean, we've all talked about the uh, ceiling of 16 gigs of RAM, and I feel like you've just got to think about that differently as far as like how the system uses that. But I mean, it, it does page for more from the system. Like If you open up uh, the stats, you'll see that it does ask the disk for RAM, and so it does share that memory. But I never felt it slow down. I never felt it bogged down for anything. I mean, I was running Plex. I was running Photoshop and Lightroom and all these apps all at once in some cases, and it just never really never gave up. So One of the things that
1: surprised me with the Mini was that there wasn't a bigger delta of performance between it and the Pro. Uh, you know, you mentioned Chris that like you open the case up, it's kind of half empty. We know it's a thicker case. We know that the fan sits basically right on top of the processor. It's the same design as the, uh, the 2018 mini. Uh, and so I kind of like, just was like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to perform a little better because it's got a higher thermal ceiling than the pro. And we really didn't see that. We saw a little bit, like maybe 1% or smaller performance differences. And to your point, Chris, about thinking differently about how this Ram works I think we also kind of have to probably reset expectations around how thermals work with these chips as well, because you can't just like put more cooling on these to make them sustain their boost mode because there's just no boost mode with these chips. It's just running at its top speed all the time. Uh, and so uh, it was it's, it's very interesting to, to see that develop. I've got a 2018 Mini here. Fan does like to come on, especially while we're doing Zoom calls. I can touch the top of it. I can, you know, keep my coffee warm if I put it on top of the, the Mini, <laughs> but like... The M1, completely different uh, computer, just in a very similar looking shell. Did you've had a lot of thoughts about
0: the unified memory architecture here. I mean, it doesn't so, seem like it is a big deal on the consumer laptops mm-hmm. or in some of these use cases. But as you get to the other kinds of machines where people have workloads that are, tax the memory system harder, it does feel like a change is coming.
3: So, it and it's going to be really interesting to see how Apple navigates it. So, like, the the very, very high-level uh, explanation of what's going on here, and if you ask me to get to the low level, I will fail really quickly, but I feel confident talking at the high level, um, is there sharing RAM between the GPU and, like, the main CPU stuff. And that's kind of new. It's an integrated uh, GPU, and that means that, in theory, um, thinking about RAM on a Mac is now the equivalent of thinking about RAM on an iPhone. So if you look at the amount of RAM on an iPhone, it's, compared to an Android phone, pretty paltry. Um, but the iPhone does diff- does stuff differently. Android does garbage collection, blah, 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 blah. So some of those like efficiency gains are now available on the Mac, um, which is great. I think it's one of the reasons it feels faster. There's less swapping and copying and extra stuff happening there. But if you're sharing that RAM with the integrated GPU, eventually, when you get on Pro Machines, you are hitting workloads and applications and professionals that have their entire system built around the idea that they have big-ass, beefy, powerful GPUs with a shit ton of RAM. And will Apple address that market by, like, Creating discrete GPUs that have their own RAM, or will it address that market by saying, "No, we like this is the way that RAM should work from now on. You don't notice the swaps as much. Everything is great." And so we're just going to ship a, the thing. We're going to make the whole thing ourselves, and we're going to make the GPU ourselves. And you need to change the way that your systems work to work with this new kind of RAM, which by the way is better. You don't. Have to, it's like easier to code to. Blah 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 blah. Or will they ship a more traditional? Discrete GPU with its own RAM system? And I kind of think the answer is we are never going to see a discrete or external GPU again on a Mac. Like, I kind of think that's what's going to happen. I don't know. Don't freak out. But, like, there's a part of me that thinks that they believe this in this unified memory architecture so much. They just are confident that the whatever worries I have or you might have about a discrete GPU, you know, being better are actually wrong. In the same way they were so confident in this M1 chip that it was going to exceed our expectations, I kind of think that they think that, like, they've got it and they don't need to go back. So, they... They've earned it with this
0: one, right? But They've earned one. a little trust because they were right <laughs> about this one. but it is true that we are aware of this chip's limits. it's we're not saying that the MacBook Air is a 9.5 because it has no limits. We're saying at its spot and price in the market, it is easily the best laptop you can buy minus the webcam, which we still have (laughs) we got to talk about
3: that. (laughs) We'll get there. Well, but this is why the MacBook Air is a 9.5 and the Mac Mini and the MacBook Pro are not. Right, because at their spots in the market, you can see
0: the the limits of the machine. I think for the Pro in particular, what's been really interesting to me is the number of people who are like, should I get the Air or the Pro? I have a more demanding workload. I should get the Pro. I'm like, you should wait a year. For the real MacBook Pro to come out, <laughs> not this th- version of the MacBook Air that has a fan. And a because touch bar. if you are, because <laughs> I, <want> <laughs> I just think like I every day on my MacBook Pro have four things plugged into it, all the time, right. and so two Thunderbolt ports. You can't get a Thunderbolt dock with more Thunderbolt. Like it's just all like you're into dongle hell instantly if you have multiple things plugged into a Mac and you only have two ports. And I think that's fair on the air. Like I think a lot of people will be fine and might never plug anything but power into a MacBook air. That's what Apple tells us all the time. But the second you're like, I run a lot of stuff. I plug in cameras and faster card readers and things like you're like, I need ports. And the second you need ports, you might as well have four of them. So we know there's Thunderbolt controllers on the M ones. We actually know it can support four ports which makes it mystifying that there's not more ports on the, on the Mac mini. Uh, but we also know that it doesn't seem to be able to support more than two displays. So on the laptops, it supports the built-in display and one external. On the mini, you can support two displays. But that's a step down from where the mini was, which could support three displays previously. So there are just some inherent 16 gigs of RAM. Seems like a limit for this machine for this architecture. We don't know. And so like the next turn is how, how much farther can you push it?
1: I, I got to say the, the GPU concern, Macs don't have great GPUs to begin with. So <laughs> uh, it's not like they've been having the best of the market for the past half decade plus. Uh, they've had kind of had, you know, AMD cards that were not even the current generation AMD cards for a long time. I would like to see what Apple does with integrated GPUs and see how far it can push it. And like to your point, Eli, the, the limits that we're seeing here are... These are entry level machines. The Mac Mini starts at seven hundred dollars. The MacBook Air is thousand dollars. The Pro is, I think, twelve ninety nine to start. These are, you know, entry level machines. They have entry level machine limits. But I would be very interested to see what a Pro machine with Apple's architecture and Apple's ideas around where how a GPU should work and how a processor should work and and everything, uh, will really, you know, pan out and and what we'll see there.
0: And they've given themselves two years for the transition. It is a sign of how well these first ones came off and you know, people are getting them now. I haven't seen any giant red flags, all the reviewers got it wrong. Like people no. are impressed with the machines in their hands. It's a sign of how well Apple has done. They were already like, what about the iMac? Like we're we're excited for the next generation, the next versions of these chips. Now we have to talk about the webcam. Which I think Joanna went on CNBC yesterday and said the webcam was bad, and that is like just lit off a firestorm of controversy. The webcam is bad. The webcam is terrible. I'm going to support our friend and former colleague, Joanna Stern. The webcam is bad.
3: Yeah. No, we we immediately were like, well, what the hell? Apple tried to do some stuff. They have done some stuff with the image signal processor to improve the picture on it. Sure. Here's what I'm going to say about uh, the webcam. It is hard to fit a good webcam in a chassis that's this thin. You know, because they like having these this thin screen at the top of the clamshell. If you let yourself have a little bit thicker z-axis there in the screen part of the clamshell, you could theoretically fit a better camera. You could theoretically fit, I don't know, a Face ID camera. And hell, if that thing is thicker and you've you've put better cameras in there, you've you've still got that extra space. Uh, you could the screen could maybe, I don't know, have a touch controller <laughs> in it. <laughs> If they hold off like two years and
0: they're like, "Yep, it's, we just glued an iPad to the top of it," that would be great. Yeah. yeah. So they are doing some stuff. We should give them credit. They are. They have the image signal processing pipeline from the iPhone chips, and there's a clear family relation. They're able to use it. They're you know they're doing something that looks a little bit like Smart HDR. They're pulling up the shadows. They're dropping the highlights. Like, yep, it's the, that's the Apple image processing pipeline. We know what it looks like. And it very much looks like this camera is going through that. It's still bad. And what makes it even weirder, and I have no idea how to show this to you. You just have to go find one of these machines and see it for yourself. Open FaceTime or the Photo Booth app and just move your head around. And you will see your face just gently smear. Yeah. Like, because it's processing your face. Mm-hmm. And so all motion, What we were on the call with Walt today and he was using his MacBook Air and he was moving. And I was like, that is just looks crazy. Yeah. You can see it through Zoom. You can see it through Zoom. Yeah. And then you move the, you move the laptop around to get the background to move and the background moves around crisply. And like, yes, I am a giant camera snob. I, I apologize, but we just came off the phone reviews where Apple will talk to me on a micron level about how impressive their camera. Last year, remember, they were like the pixel wells are deeper. They're like <laughs> in it to tell me how good their cameras were. And this year, they're like, yeah, it's 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 the same. <laughs> Software fixed it. It's just a it's it would have been a ten. Like we put it in the video, it would have been a ten. But you, you we cannot look at this webcam in the context of the full product review and say you got everything right. Because they've just been so stubborn about this. Could have been
3: a 10. Could have been a 10. It's ridiculous. Um, And there are other things where, like, when I was like, oh, man, am I really going to do 9.5? Let me make the list of of knocks. So webcams at the top. The next on the list of knocks is definitely iOS apps. And that was a huge whiff. Uh, Then there's no touchscreen. And then after that, you're just like, you start to feel like you're nitpicking. And I don't know that touchscreen is a fair knock yet. I think it's, we're very close to, like, all Max get knocked off a point for not having a touchscreen. Um. <laughs> Actually,
0: Peter let's take a quick break and come back and talk about iOS apps and what is happening with the App Store because it's a whole a whole situation. Yeah, we'll be right back.
2: If you game, you know
5: settling into your battle station feels enlivening. But gaming on Alienware gear with Intel Core i9 processors? It's more than that. It's a feeling you won't forget. It's where intentional design blurs
0: the line between fantasy and reality. It's where your gear feels like an extension of you. Sometimes it's so immersive, so responsive,
5: you can't tell yourself from your machine. If you're ready to feel one with your gear, start gaming at Alienware.com, featuring the Alienware M15.
0: OK, we're back. So we, we got to talk about iOS apps on these Macs. We got to mm-hmm. talk about the fact that Dieter and Welch like hacked their way into running <laughs> illegal <laughs> software. The cops came to Chris's house last night. <laughs> uh, then there's some App Store stuff to talk about. Well, let's start at the beginning iOS apps on these devices are very much just like a whiff.
3: Yeah, it's huge whiff. So it's because it's got the iPhone's chip and iPhone architecture, they built an iOS system into macOS. And in some ways, it's actually really, really clever. So one of the things Chris noticed is if you right-click on a dock icon, it pops up like a right-click menu. That is the same right-click menu that you get when you long-press an icon on an iPhone home screen. Right? Like they thought about that. But what they've done is they know that like a bunch of apps aren't going to work well on the Mac. They tried to like prime the pump with Catalyst and get people thinking about how do you take an iPad app and tweak it to make it work on a Mac. And then nobody used Catalyst um, and except, you know, whatever. So it's, it's still there. Uh, so some apps have opted out of being available in the Mac App Store. And in fact, most of the ones you care about have opted out because they all know either because they have like some business reason to not want to have their app be available on the Mac because they'd rather be in the browser where you can be tracked or something, I don't know. Uh, Or they just know that it's a weird experience and they actually need to do real work to make it work well on the Mac. So when you go to the Mac App Store and click on your little name and then click on the iOS app, thing to go look at what's available to you it is a gallery of abandonware <laughs> it is just clearly a bunch of developers who haven't touched their app in two years right because if they had they would have opted out of this thing <laughs> <laughs> and so whatever you install a bunch some of them are good people that pay attention and think about it like overcast uh, of course uh, mark armand's app uh really good some other apps work pretty well. You can resize them and so on. But then there's a bunch of apps that just don't that should have opted out and didn't. And the one that everybody hit on, and uh, I'm on the list, is HBO Max. Well, they advertised HBO Max. Yeah. What are you doing? It's stuck in a little window, Uh, which is, that is some Gen 1 Android apps on Chrome shit right there. (laughs) Okay? Like, I'm not kidding. It is, that the level of implementation here is maybe like 20% better than uh, Google's first cut at this, which was real bad. And so... You know, like, you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll find a couple that I like. The idea is great. It's like, oh, I want to have, like, this one little utility that I love in my iPhone available on the Mac, right? Or, like, Spotify, maybe. You want the iOS app instead of the Mac app because it's lighter or something. You just can't do it because they're either not around or they're kind of not great. And then on top of all of that, uh, Apple knows that there's just going to end up being some apps that get made available on the Mac because they decided to have it be opt out instead of opt in which is a choice that I disagree with. And so they knew a bunch of these things would be optimized so Apple knew it had to create another system to make sure that users would be able to use iOS apps that didn't hadn't been fully customized for the Mac and yet were still available in the Mac App Store and I'm walking myself up to touch alternatives. <laughs> Somebody else has to talk about it because I'm too angry about it. <laughs> it's it there's a menu, in if you run an iOS
0: app on your M1 Mac, you can go to the application menu, and you can open Touch Alternatives, mm-hmm. and you get a little screen that is just one of the most poorly designed dialog boxes in Apple history. It's all, like, center-aligned. Things are, like, randomly capitalized or not capitalized. And it's just a list of ways you can, like, use your keyboard to fake a touchscreen. Like, you press Option Left, and it will, like... That's a swipe from the right edge of the, and it. No one will ever remember any of it. Also, uh, this is true. Touch alternatives is something you turn on and off. So that menu isn't a way to bring up the instructions. It just shows up the first time you turn touch alternatives on in an app. And then if you go to do it again, it just you've turned on this system of keyboard commands with no reference to how to do anything yeah. ever. And again. if you didn't take a screenshot to dunk on it like we did, you're out of luck. <laughs> you'll, you'll never know. And then on top of it, there's on the. You know, on the laptop, so you've got the big trackpad, and so it's mm-hmm. like you can just map. There's a, a you can just map the trackpad to a touchscreen, which you think is a great idea. All of us have, have <laughs> all of us have stared at a Mac and been like, "Look at the size of this trackpad! It's the size of an iPhone." Right, that makes sense, and yeah. you realize the key to the iPhone touchscreen is that it is a screen, <laughs> and you can see what you are touching. And your brain, when you look at a window of arbitrary size mapped yeah. to a trackpad of a different size, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Your brain is like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm touching anymore. I'm done with this. Turn it off. Quit this app. It's very bad. And it's very much the menu that Apple had to build before putting a touchscreen on the map. Like, you can just see the The joke that I've lifted from Neil Dash is imagine the meeting like they had a meeting like some intern and a project manager sat in a room and were like we got to build touch alternatives today like I'll check out the ticket and they fought through it and they got to this and y- someone said yep ship it that's good enough and all of that is bad yeah all of that is a mistake and the second a touch screen is on Mac it will all go yep. away
3: All of which aside, say you want to experience this uh, madness. It's kind of neat sometimes to have an app that uh, you had on your phone, on your computer, but you can't get the ones you want unless you go through a very interesting process and you can run apps that were designed for the iPhone that are not in the Mac App Store. Chris, can you like tell us how we figured this out and like what exactly is happening to get these apps running?
5: Uh, so I think there was a port uh, for Mac Rumors uh, where they found out that if you just sideload uh, the IPA file, which is what the app's format is, to your Mac, uh, you can just load it onto your Mac and it'll just install and open. And so they found out that you can do this for Spotify and Netflix and all sorts of other apps, and they just kind of open up. It is tied to your Apple ID, so you can't send other people apps, uh, so that's kind of important from... Uh, so you can't just steal games or everything else. Uh, so, but yeah, it works as you'd expect. And some of these apps work okay. I mean, Netflix uh, does support offline downloads. And so you can uh, uh, use them for that. It's Yeah. Does it support uh, resizing the window or going full screen? It's not full screen, but you can zoom in. You uh, <laughs> can, can zoom in with the accessibility settings and it works fine. So that's kind of a hack uh, while we're in this weird phase of these apps not being supported. And who knows what? Who knows when they will be i mean i, I hope netflix is gonna yeah. make an app uh, for uh, these ships but yeah i mean you can just kind of run wild and open up any apps that are on your phone for now for now <laughs> for now. well so there's a lot to unpack there yeah so
0: it's, what's interesting to me is the apps come as dot ipa files mm-hmm. which is interesting like you don't ever see an iphone app as its app mm-hmm. right it's so like mac apps like look like an app they're like dot app like it's a you're aware, but you can like move it around. An iPhone app is like, I guess I'll manage my home screen now. And then like 20 minutes later, you've accomplished nothing. But these are .IPA files. They don't show up as apps. They're files. You can see the file extension. But when you double-click them, they install. Like a window, like a little dialog mm-hmm. box pops up and says, installing Spotify or whatever, yep. which is fascinating to me because it means Why? Finder knows what to do with these files. Like, oh, sure. you're supposed to get them out of the app store, Yeah. but you double click them and like the Finder knows what to do with them. Yeah. So they've built that facility because it wouldn't be there otherwise.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then what's further interesting to me is this notion that like Apple would turn this off or developers would get mad. Like we don't ever think about apps as something that we can't just like try to run wherever we want right. unless they're on the phone. Mm-hmm. So here we've brought over iOS apps, and we've brought over all of these expectations about control. Yeah, Can the developer prevent us from running apps on this machine? Can Apple prevent us from running apps on this machine? And I I think what's going to happen, I don't like it, I think what's going to happen is they will find a way to shut this down. And I, I don't like that. I, that's not how I want my Mac to be. I should be able to do whatever crazy-ish I want to do on my Mac whenever I want. And then we can continue to have the conversation about how locked down the phones are. But I really don't like the idea that I have bought bits from someone somewhere and I'm now prevented. I'm trying to run them on whatever computer I have.
3: Yeah. So I've I've got a few thoughts on this one. Uh, if anyone is going to like lock it down, I would prefer it be the developer, not Apple. Uh, there are plenty of software licenses that uh, like make you pay per machine that you use it on, right? And that's not the way it works with iOS licenses. You can use as many iPhones as you want, whatever. But if a developer, for some reason, wanted to prevent this from working and that was their call... I don't love it, but okay. Uh, I don't like Apple shutting it down. And to be clear, the way that this works is, as Chris mentioned, it has to be tied to your Apple ID. But you used to be able to just like go to your iTunes backups if they were unencrypted and find these IPA files. And Apple turned that off in like I don't know, iTunes 12.6 or something, seven, whatever. But you can still get them. So we found an app. that's called iAmazing, um, and it just it does it does a, it's a really great utility for like backing up stuff off of your iPhone. Right? It's just it does it's not doing anything nefarious. It's just a much more I don't know, intensive backup utility for your phone. And so what you could do is you could download the IPA file from the App Store and then just save it locally, and then you've got it. So that's all great, but Apple could like, I don't know, shut that down. They could yell at iAmazing and the next person who tries to make utility that makes it easy to get an app off of the phone or get an app off of the thing, like they could lock it down via the App Store or via the phone in some way um, without locking down the Mac. What gives me a sliver of hope is every time Apple has walked up to the line of locking down the mac too much the backlash has been big enough and loud enough that they've pulled back from the brink the most recent example is this server that is you know checking to see if apps have been signed or whatever it was there was a huge hue and cry and apple just like oh yeah quietly published a white paper saying oh this is exactly how it works and we don't keep the data and oh yeah by the way we're also gonna do a better job encrypting it next year <laughs> yeah. no relation to the drama that just happened we're just we just have released a white paper ex- explaining how this uh, this feature works Da-da. and so my hope is if they do try to lock this down i don't know that they'll they won't be quick on the jump and then there'll be enough people who like using this stuff, that there'll be a hue and cry and stop them. Or there'll just be a big enough hue and cry from people who want the Mac to be the Mac and not be locked down to stop them.
5: Yeah, it seems like one of those things that they just didn't see coming. I mean, these files are all I feel like remnants from those days back when you would like have your app library in iTunes and you would sync apps yeah. over to your iPhone, which was a special kind of hell. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I'm glad, I'm glad we're out of those days. But I think like this kind of goes back to that. And they just didn't see people trying this. I mean, it seems like one of those things maybe Apple should have tried, would have tried. Maybe it's just one of those things they didn't care about. But we'll see. I don't know. Mac users are going to try it. So like that's to Neelai's <laughs> point.
1: The difference between a Mac and, a, and an iPhone, right? It's like one of them is presented as a computer, and the other is presented as not a computer. And like dragging and dropping files and installers and and seeing the extensions and uh, you know transferring files and so on is like things you do with a computer. So it's also possible that Apple
3: is not a monolith on this issue, and that the people inside the Mac team were like, yeah, we're the Mac team. We're open. We let you do stuff. We let you run scripts and stuff. We are gonna like in the Finder on the Mac, make something happen when you double click it so that it installs the IPA file. And and if you don't like it, iPhone team, you know, tough tough cookies. We're the Mac team. We do we do what we want.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just like at some point you have to imagine that Netflix and. Spotify. I was going to say Instagram, but Instagram has never even made an iPad app, So, Like, who knows? <laughs> but, like, they're going to want these apps on these machines for a variety of reasons, not least of which is they will probably have better battery life if they are running natively as apps versus running potentially in a, in a browser, especially with the browser's Chrome. Mm-hmm. So
3: w- hopefully we see that happen. There has not been a rush to it. So, I think that you're super wrong that these developers are going to want... They they might want these things to be apps on these machines, but if you want to be a developer in good standing with Apple, you are not allowed to distribute iOS apps for the Mac except through the App Store, full stop. So, they could low-key, sneaky, make it good on the Mac and not distribute it on the Mac Store, and then it would work, but... If these developers want to get their apps on the Mac, they have to go through the Mac App Store. And I don't know if you've heard, but Netflix <laughs> isn't super fond of the terms and conditions of Apple's app stores.
0: Yeah, yeah, the idea that you would put have a Netflix app on your Mac that wasn't allowed to tell you how to sign up for Netflix is insane. Right. I mean, it's insane. It's insane on your phone too, and whatever. But yeah. Well, it's, I I I think that's like one of the great unknowns here is will they cave and put the touchscreen on and make it so it's a first-class experience for this huge universe of apps that people obviously want to run. right? You can hack Instagram to run on it, and it's itty bitty. And it's still like, oh, this is better than looking at Instagram on the web on a Mac. right? Like, It's already better. You can just see the demand is going to build for it. That said, the demand has been there on the iPad for like how long? And they haven't done it, so we'll see. But you can just see how the next turn of this is definitely to put the touchscreen on. It might be the turn after that. We've got a bet. We do have a bet going, but like uh, we haven't <laughs> talked about Big Sur at all. We, right. And like Monica reviewed Big Sur. It's great. You should go read it. I am just not going to use it. I'm skipping this one. Really? I think it's a mess. It's a visual mess. And I don't like using it. And in particular, everything they've done in sort of the top right of the screen is too iOSified. Yeah. It all looks like you should touch it, mm-hmm. which makes it harder to use with a mouse. And then, in particular, that notifications view. What is the messiest part of an iPhone? It's notifications. And they're like, "What if notifications on the Mac worked like that?" And it, <laughs> I would prefer not actually. And I, I just, I, there needs to be a year of Craig Federighi being like, "This is messier than I want," and then fixing it, and then I'll use it. I, I honestly, I'm going to skip Big Sur. That's uh, like,
3: I'm, I'm going to change your mind right now. How's that? You know how every single iOS app is um, making widgets for iOS because like they're pretty good now on the iPhone? Yeah. If you use this backwards method to install iOS apps on your Mac, those widgets become available for you to put in the sidebar. I don't want widgets
0: in my Mac sidebar. I just want a <laughs> notification and a giant button that says do not disturb and another yeah. giant button that says clear all. And I want the notifications to have the actual actions in them. Big sir, notifications, you have to hover and click yep. to get the close button. Like, what is all of this was made for touching? Yeah. I and you're not letting me touch the computer. So yeah. I'm going to stay <laughs> back here in Catalina with my OS designed for a mouse.
5: So you can <laughs> touch just the went, computer.
0: <laughs> like, it's, ah, it's maddening. I, I've skipped so many years of macOS updates. First of all, I just stayed on Snow Leopard for like three years. I just refused yeah, to leave. which was the best one. It was the best one. And then I've I've basically skipped every other one. And I've never had any ill effects. The only reason I upgraded Catalina this is so in the weeds. The only reason I upgraded Catalina, this is a hundred percent true. When you take a screenshot in Catalina, yeah. you can just click on the screenshot and drag it into a Slack window. Yeah. Which I do five thousand times a day and you couldn't do that before. And once I got like the review unit of a Catalina machine, I was like, shit, I have to upgrade a Catalina. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about the App Store. There is a bunch of App Store news and outcry. They have reduced, the math here is, we, you just have to follow it along. So if you are a developer, and you make less than a million dollars a year in revenue, on January 1st, your App Store fee goes from 30% to 15%. There are a lot of developers who make less than a million dollars a year, and they are very, very happy about this. There are some very loud developers who make more than a million dollars a year, and they think this is the most evil trick that anyone has ever pulled on them. I think that's about that sums
3: it up. That's the long and the short of it. There's like things in the middle. Like I think you need to apply. You need to tell Apple, "Here's my revenue. Please cut my fee." Apple, you know, will start keeping track of it. Um, and at first, I was like, "What the hell? Why don't they just make it fifteen percent?" And then it's like, "Oh well." Say you're a developer, you start getting close to a million dollars, you just create a new company. Like, there's, like, things, sketchy things can happen, I don't know. So, that's fine. The other thing to me, and I, I tweeted this, a um, million dollars ain't what it used to be. Like, if you're actually trying to, like, pay employees and, like, you know, pay the upkeep on your server and maybe you have an office, like, uh, for a small business, that gets eaten up pretty quick. Um, so, there's that. I wish I could cap were a little bit higher. And then the third thing is, I think Sensor Tower estimates that 98% of developers make less than a million dollars a year. So this is a huge win. Uh, but that that other two percent is the one that makes all of the money. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I'm getting the percentages wrong, but like, Tldr, the vast majority of like developers will fall under this thing and be eligible for 15%. But the vast majority of money will not. I think that 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 split
0: is the heart of the matter, right? Steven Sanofsky tweeted this. Usually, you give the discount to your highest value customer, <laughs> <laughs> right? The the one who's transacting the most, who who's making you the most money, you're like, we'd like to give you a discount. Thank you for shopping here. Your next sub sandwich is free. It's, I mean, like you experience yeah. this in your life all of the time. Mm-hmm. Here, Apple's like, we're gonna keep screwing you. You're all very mad. You stay mad. Friends, army of small developers, all of you will be slightly happier. We're not making any money from you anyway. And that is just a wild, I mean, there's like PhD theses to be written about this kind of market and
3: Apple's ability to do that as opposed to the thing that you usually do. So are you suggesting that the best customers are the people that make Apple the most money Apple doesn't have to give them a discount because they have nowhere else to go. Is that what you're saying? Right. If you're
0: Fortnite, you're like, well, we're just going to screw our business on principle. Or Google Stadia, how is it going to come? It's going to come as a web app. xCloud is going to be a web app. This Amazon Luna thing is going to be a web app. GeForce, because Apple won't let their businesses exist on the store. And you know, to wrap this all back into the, the Mac conversation, like the Bill Gates line about platforms is, you're a true platform when other people are making more money than you. And the, the Mac has been that platform for a long time. You can build a huge business. Adobe is a gigantic business built on selling products on other people's platforms. And it, we, we've just never had like platform warfare with them in the way that Epic or xCloud or Stadia seems like it's crashing into platform warfare on the iPhone and now potentially on the Mac. And that it's it's a good move. I'm happy that Apple felt the pressure. Like the even just the thought of regulation has made the companies move and change. There's a rumor that Apple's gonna start suggesting other apps as defaults in the setup flow of the iPhone. That is wild. That is the result of pressure making the product better for consumers. I'm there. I still don't know what the answer is for this 30% and like Yeah, Spotify sent us a a statement after this was announced. It was basically like, no, not this. This isn't what we wanted. Like (laughs) it was just like the words like anti-competitive, mad, criminal, like just all the keywords of anger, like in a row. David Hannemeyer Hansen, you can look at his Twitter feed. He's like, Apple's scamming you. They're just making you feel good, but they're still screwing everyone. And then like other indie developers like arguing with him, like, no, this is good for us. Don't you you're like they have thrown this like chum into the water to, to muck up the, the fundamental concern, which is they control the platform, and they make the decisions unilaterally, in a way that if you don't like it, your choice is to destroy your business, and like it's not to go to Android, like, you know what I mean? Like you can't just walk away from this huge market of iOS users if that's where your business is, and I, I, I still think there's a lot to be unpacked there, but it's good that they, it's good that the pressure is working, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's good. that The pressure is working. The I, I don't know what the answer is either. Honestly, like reduce the percentages across the board. That's clearly what I think uh, a bunch of people just want. I was thinking the the storefront analogy. The more I think about it, the angrier it makes me. Like back in the day, Babbage just charged fifty percent. You know, when you had to buy physical software. The whole point of the internet is we don't have to pay those costs. <laughs> uh, that's why we have a website and not a, a magazine. Oh, it would be cool if we had a magazine. Oh, yeah, Well, We should get a magazine. That's a good The idea. cover this week would have been like
0: you holding the MacBook Air Loft and the words <laughs> triumph underneath it. It would be great. <laughs> we're going to take a break. There's a little bit of stuff to pick up. Uh, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Armor Lock. Collaboration looks a lot different these days. You can't just roll your chair over a few desks to share hard files with your coworkers. As a result, we're sending more and more work back and forth to collaborators all over the country and even the world. Whatever you're dealing with, important legal documents, tracks for your next album, or the first cut of a feature film, it all deserves high quality data protection, and ArmorLock can help. Simply put, ArmorLock offers pro level protection for your data. It's an encrypted SSD, that's a solid state drive, that works in tandem with an easy to use app to deliver high grade data security. You don't even need to set up a password. With ArmorLock, your phone is your key, which means you can add remote users all over the world. So if you need to ship your drive to a collaborator, they can unlock it as soon as it arrives. And speaking of shipping, the ArmorLock SSD is built for the job. It's rugged, so it can handle all the bumps and bruises of world travel without compromising your data. Collaboration is hard enough these days. Data security doesn't have to be with ArmorLock. Go to getarmorlock.com
5: to learn more and get yours. This is Matthew Iglesias, host of the Weeds podcast. I'm going to tell you about a new short series I'm going to be hosting in the Weeds feed. As you probably heard, Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. So as we do here at the Weeds, we're going to take a deep dive into Biden's various policy proposals, how he'll govern in a potentially divided government situation, and what's going to determine what a Biden-Harris administration actually does. Uh, so starting this Friday, November 13th, through inauguration, I'm going to be speaking with policy experts to try to unpack what Biden plans to do on the economy, healthcare, foreign policy, climate change, and so much more. So join us every Friday by subscribing to the Weeds and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We're back. Dieter, It' there's just a bunch of Google stuff. There's like four hours of RCS conversation. Let's Let's do it. Oh, do we want to do four hours RCS conversation? We could do No, we do not. I will say that I tried to shut down the thread conversation last week with Dan, and then like people are tweeting us, so like, give us the two hours of thread. So <laughs> I'm like signed up for a Chris Welch HDMI special, and now I gotta do a Dan <laughs> thread special.
3: <laughs> RCS, tell us what's going on. So the thing that affects everybody is Google has completed the worldwide rollout of are providing RCS directly itself in Android Messages, so you don't have to wait for your carrier to support it. So, if you have an Android phone, you can download Android Messages, and you can use RCS with anybody else that is part of the global interconnect of the universal profile. <laughs> it's very specific language there. You can't just say part of the universal profile, because, like, AT&T, for example, supports the universal profile, but they don't support interconnect. It's a whole mess. But... That mess is no longer a problem for you as long as you don't live in China, Russia, or Iran, because Google doesn't distribute uh, Android messages there, apparently with RCS. Sure. So that's great. so they've they've basically the problem of like when is this actually going to be available to consumers? Why do we have to wait for the carriers to implement it? blah 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 blah, blah blah. That's been going on for two years is done. Like you could just have you could just have RCS chat now. Great. The second thing, the thing that I personally think is more important, um, because you know, like eventually that stuff was going to be available to everybody anyway, but the thing that's more important is they are enabling end-to-end encryption by default for one-on-one conversations in Android Messages. It's rolling out to people that sign up for the Android Messages beta this month. They won't give me a timeline for when it will actually launch, uh, but I have to assume it'll be sometime next year. But everything in RCS moves slower than I expected it to, so I don't know. But that is a huge win. Uh, who knows if it'll come to group chats? Who knows? blah, 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 blah. But end-to-end encryption on the texting medium that is designed to replace SMS is, like, it's the default way that your phone has to send a text message to another phone for 90% of the phones on the planet. Uh, that is a huge deal. That's a huge privacy win. Because I don't know if you've heard, but when the government asks Verizon or AT&T for information, historically, maybe not necessarily recently, but historically, the government isn't even able to finish its sentence before they're given <laughs> access to all kinds of data. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if this, this stuff is end-to-end encrypted, neither Google nor your phone carrier will be able to do anything with the contents of those those conversations. Uh, That is that's that's just like the baseline. There's like other benefits to encryption, of course. So I'm like pretty excited uh, about that. When does it roll out? Well, uh, it's rolling out to beta users now. We don't they won't give me a timeline for when it will roll into the main thing. So, best guess, it's going to be a full year before we're like, okay, everyone can do it now. And there might be fights in between now and then because right now Google's policy is, if you're a carrier and you don't you don't provide RCS services to your customers, we're going to do it. Uh, but if you do, then we'll let you and we'll get out of your way, which could like cause some folder all with whether or not this will actually truly be a universal uh, encryption thing or not. You mean carriers um, are
0: lying about what they're going to do and they're not doing it? Yeah.
3: So, like, I'm excited, but uh, there's there's still plenty of opportunity for shenanigans uh, over the next couple of years, uh, not least of which is, if we really do want RCS to supplant SMS and become the thing that, is, that we, we use to text each other, you should be able to text any phone. Because the, the nice thing about SMS is it's basically universal. iPhones don't support RCS, and Apple has never said peep about whether or not they will.
0: You have to imagine that if Verizon and AT&T can convince Apple to... I don't know, put random icons at the top of the screen, (laughs) which they're able to do, or like accelerate
3: 5G marketing before they need to, like they might. But there is real money uh, that Apple will be leaving on the table by switching on RCS because a lot of businesses want to use RCS for their customer service chats. It's like the most convenient thing for them, that they really want to do it. Apple has a business in providing iMessage business chat. Um, And so that's like one of many different ways that Apple could be leaving money on the table. The iMessage app store exists. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, but they would just keep running iMessage
0: and it would still be better than RCS, right? Like that's the, yeah, they could just do that. And they would do that.
1: To to that point, what are some of the, I guess, limitations of encrypted chats in RCS? You already mentioned it's just one-on-one communication. It's not group messages. Are there other things?
3: Yeah, you can't you can you can have the web browser client because it's basically just running through your phone, but you're not gonna have your messages synced across lots of different phones, you know, which I think for Android users is a foreign idea anyway, because like only their third party messaging apps are really good at that. The SMS apps are really not. You can't do group chats and you know, there's other potential gotchas there i'm trying to think of one 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 that you won't run into is you will be able to use all the features in android messages they made everything client side instead of talking to google servers for their you know smart chip suggestions for smart replies and emoji stickers and blah 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 blah. Um, so like they're not going to break any features within android messages by turning this on um, the other caveat is the only way this works is if you're an Android message user talking to another Android message user and you both support descendant encryption protocol because it's all happening. They're just doing it in the app, right? The app calls the other app and says, hey, are you are you chat? Are you Android messages? Cool. Oh, do, you, do you support encryption? Cool. And then you're encrypted, right? But like any no in that chain means you're just sending regular old SMS or even SMS
1: or RCS. Is there a... Like a visual indicator to let you know that the chat is encrypted. There's a lock at the top of the chat. There's a lock on the
3: bubbles that get sent that say that they're (laughs) encrypted. And there's a lock on the send button to tell you that you're sending an encrypted message. Amazing. Yeah. What you want is your phone to make you feel like a spy. And
0: it's just like an an underutilized marketing technique to make your phone make you feel
3: like a secret agent. They published a white paper that goes into, I would say, not deep detail, but a little bit of detail about how this implementation works. They're happy to have other people build it or work with them on it, but this is not part of the GSMA Universal Profile. This is not being built into the spec. This is just a thing yeah. that Google is doing. Is Samsung going to do it? Because that's an important piece of the puzzle. I think Samsung will do it. Yeah, and I, I I trust that. And they're not fully going rogue. They're still talking to everybody. No nobody's surprised. Nobody within the RCS world is surprised by this. Um, but it is still Google just doing the thing. I like that you know that,
0: one, there is an RCS world. You know how big it is. And you know the state of surprise in that world.
3: I, I spend I spend my weekends watching GSMA RCS business seminars. That's what I do. you got to relax somehow.
0: There's one more piece of uh, <laughs> Google news we should talk about, which is, just briefly, Google launched a new messaging app this week. Oh my gosh. Um It's called Google Pay. It is <laughs> right. It's a it's a messaging app. It just sends money instead of chats. Yeah. Uh, but then they also like m- try to make it everything else. They basically are turning into a bank.
3: Yeah. So Google Pay send, which on the iPhone was called Google Pay, was already <laughs> this. It was already the Venmo <laughs> competitor. So they just, like, integrated everything in. And this had already launched in India as well, pretty much. But what they've done is they've taken peer-to-peer. They've also had the tap-to-pay stuff. They also let you plug your bank and credit card information into it so they can track all your finances for you. And if you want, you can have them send you personalized deals based on what they see in your transaction history to get you cash back into your Google Pay account. Plus, wait, Eli, there's more. Would you like... Would you like to also give Google Pay complete and full access to every single email and every single photo that you have stored in Gmail and Google Photos? Because then they can scan it automatically to ingress even more information into this system for even more exciting things. Like if you take a picture of a receipt and the receipt has the word taco on it, and then you search for tacos later, they will know that you spent $5 on tacos on, you know, January 3rd or whatever. So there's, okay, I will, let me start with. I think
0: there's more features. Oh, there's more. Oh, good. It has stories. <laughs> kill me. <laughs> <laughs> just kill me. <laughs> like why like why does Twitter have fleets and why does Google Pay have stories? Like all the scenes to end. I know why Twitter has it, because it's a nice advertising yeah. canvas for them. They can just like put more ads in Twitter. It's great. There's whatever. Google Paid first of all, okay, here's the pro case. I think everybody in their life wants someone to follow them around who's good at money right like you want to be like let me talk to my account like that's a thing like that's what that's like a jay-z says oh okay right? sure right there's like jay-z just has like a lawyer an accountant and a publicist an agent and those are his people and he's like i want to buy a boat and then they like go do something and then like there's a boat that's how i think jay-z lives i don't yeah okay i haven't done any reporting on this but that <laughs> is my theory of jay-z's life yeah i would like that right where you just like can I buy this? And the thing like calculates a deal and does your credit card points for you. And like, yeah, that sounds nice. Like a little money Butler. Okay. To enable the little money Butler, you need to also allow an all seeing panopticon into your life. <laughs> I, that I, seems problem like that trade off. I don't want to do. We yeah. we have this
1: problem in the smart home world as well. Like in order to make your smart home really work well, it needs loads and loads and loads of data. And in order to make a financial assistant money butler work really, really <laughs> well, it needs loads and loads and loads of data.
0: If we can rebrand CPAs <laughs> as money butlers, first of all, amazing cultural moment. Are they sure. wearing <laughs>
1: shoes and are they dogs? Do you <laughs> want Bixby money? Because that's what's coming next. It's oh God. But the question is up. like, at which point does the value of a money butler justify giving Google or whatever it is, all of this data and like, I don't know. Personally, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about it. Uh, I, I, I would not want to give that much data to one entity and that entity also be Google, which also has loads of other data about me already and also makes its money by selling ads.
0: Yeah. I just, there's like a, what's the best argument to break these companies up to make them smaller. So if they grow in reasonable and like acceptable ways again, like Google's so big, they're like, now we're a bank. Facebook is so big. They're like, now we're a currency. Apple's like, we have a credit card. They're like, the joke about Sony for years was that it was a very successful insurance company with a failing TV division because it makes all of its money in financial services in Japan. And it would be like, do you want 3D TVs this year? No. <laughs> and then the insurance company, like, what are you doing? Like, make a good TV. And then, like, the next year they would do it. That's where you get when you're these kinds of conglomerates, right? You're, you're just out of things to do. So you're like, now we're going to do bank stuff. Because banks make free money, and it's just break them up. Like make YouTube try to make a search engine. That would be a better way for Google to grow than for it to just become this like crazy. I'm not signing up for this. It's like one of the first Google products. Google Photos, right? Is like is a scary kind of product. You're gonna give Google all of your photos. It returns enormous value to you.
3: Yeah. This is like some coupons. So it's some coupons. I don't know. I, I plugged in the how'd you spend your money? I plugged I tr- plugged all my stuff in for science. I might do a review or just write about it later. Um, it's like made a little chart that shows me how much money I spent this month at Apple, Amazon. Eurozone, REI, and Sony. Just like, this is where your money went to these giant corporations and, and a little <laughs> interface. Yeah. Eurozone's not a giant corporation. It's a sweet thing where you can get custom parts for your Volkswagen Golf. Highly recommend it. I love it. Um, <laughs> so that's like neat, but I don't know. The coupons, they're cashback offers. And the way that they work is you say, yes, I'll do this cashback offer. And anytime you use the, your associated credit card at the store, you get the money. So you don't have to like remember a coupon code, but the money comes back to you as Google pay money in your Google pay account. So all of a sudden, like, just like Apple pay, you've got an Apple pay account with money in it or a PayPal account or a Venmo account. And you like lose track of like, well, you've got $10 here or $50 there or whatever. Google's got this money in a bank account that it controls and maybe could earn interest on it. I don't know. So there's like, there's money there. There's money in their deals with the Uh, different retailers for these cashback deals. There's money in the banks that they're going to partner with to order straight up online banking directly inside the (laughs) app. No, (laughs) see, yeah, (laughs) what again
0: until you get to the point where you're like, Hey, Google, I like this mansion, figure out how to buy it, and you go away and you come back one day and they're like, The papers are here, and then Google itself spits out like a leather bound sheet of contracts, Uh and you got to, right. That's the dream. This is just like skimming. So they got to go from skimming to what I imagine is like Rihanna's experience buying a new Bentley, right? Just get to there, Google. I don't know. I I understand why it's valuable for them to do, and certainly everybody can be better at managing their money. But this is like right on the edge of Google being scary.
3: Yeah, maybe it's over. The, maybe it's over the edge. Maybe. It's, uh,
0: again, this is one of the few Google products where I'm like, oh, I'll just try it out because. The first thing you have to do is give it your checking account. I'm like, I'm not doing that.
3: This is the other thing. It's the, they promise not to share or sell your information with third parties. Of course, like if you buy something, the third party will know. <laughs> but they also promise not to share it with the Google ad division for ad targeting. But like it's a promise. If you don't pay attention to the next time they update their terms of service, who knows? Right? Right. It's just it's it's just a matter of policy, not of law, that they're not sharing it for ad targeting services. They could change their mind, and so you're going to have to keep an eye on it if you sign up for this thing.
0: We'll just see how it goes. Okay. I, I know they're promising it now, but Google's an advertising company. Yep. If they can link their advertising to you mm-hmm. to you making an actual purchase, mm-hmm. like they have closed the loop, they're they're it. Yep. The, that's that's the
3: win. It's yep. the ultimate win. But wait, there's more. You can scan barcodes when you're out at the store, and then you can make that purchase through Google Shopping instead of at the store that you happen to be at. Wow, (laughs) great. It's also a messaging app, which means, look, it's going to be fine in like six months, they're going to kill it. They're
0: going to make this the home
5: screen of Android. Come on. (laughs) The end. One more piece of Google news, and it's Chrome, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, This week, Google put out a new Chrome update that they say has the largest performance gain in years. And this post really blew up on our site because people are always psyched. So they claim that Chrome will now use up to five times less CPU, and it'll give you back 1.25 hours of battery life, uh, which kind of goes to show you just how just how much battery this thing uses. Uh but yeah, yeah. people are pretty psyched about <laughs> it. But I mean, most of the comments on our site were saying too little too late. I've already switched <laughs> to edge and like Edge is great <laughs> and this and that. I mean I, a lot of a lot of Edge fans at the moment.
0: Most merge. of the comments on our site were like a coordinated, you <laughs> know, <authentic> microsoft
2: <laughs> Could have been.
3: They're getting a lot of these gains through like shutting down background tabs the way that everybody else does, right? right. Like the cuz yeah, like you can have rogue tabs just go nuts on Chrome.
5: Yeah, and there's some uh, new features like tab search, which is awesome, so you can finally search your tabs without having to like squint at all the favicons to see what is what. Uh, so that's pretty useful, but it seems like Chrome has some kind of image problem with a certain subset of people. I'm not sure how Google Google can set that right, but uh.
0: there was also just briefly they put out an M1 build of Chrome, and we all got excited about it. And then there was some problem with it, and they took it away. And now so, it's back. It's back. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I gotta go. I gotta try this out. We gotta end the show. We've gone way too like you don't know how long the show is supposed to be, but I guarantee you this is longer.
3: Yeah, but we're gonna, we're, we're we're taking next week off, so it's good that this one's long because you can listen to it again on Thanksgiving.
0: That's true. We're off next week for Thanksgiving. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Please don't visit anyone. Just stay home and stay safe. Please do it for me. We're off uh, for Thanksgiving next week. So thank you to everyone for listening. We appreciate you. We'll see you in a couple weeks. That's it. Rock and roll. Wear a mask and stay home.